630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. You know, I really do love you guys because you come up with some interesting stuff. And Brian just texted this in. And Brian, I got to give you credit. I have no idea how your mind took you to this. I mean, obviously, life's uh, quite a bit different for most of us these days. So, Brian, maybe you're maybe you're sitting around on your rocking chair on your porch doing a little whittling. And uh, some Oilers questions pop. That's how I imagine you, Brian. Anyway, I'd appreciate if you if you don't ruin my fantasy of you. So Brian's on his rocking chair on his porch. He's got his radio on his little side table and uh, a nice... Kind of like uh, a fairly ornate jug of lemonade. You know what I'm talking about, Kellen? Like one of the nice glass jugs of lemonade. Oh, that's with cool. With some lemon slices floating some, in it. Some country tan. And he's, he's poured. Because he's, Brian said he's in Millet, and I, I, I believe Millet's experiencing a heat wave right now. Oh, is it just mo- a- Most of the province were around zero. Millet, it's very warm. It's lem- it's lemonade weather. So, <laughs> Brian, so Brian sits on his porch in his rocking chair, which he, he, he made the rocking chair himself, by the way, because Brian's very good with his hands. And Brian's listening to the show, and he, he's thinking about the Oilers, and he, and he comes up with this question. All right. Hello, Reed. Who has played the most NHL games only as a member of the Edmonton Oilers. So the first name that popped into my head was Ryan Nugent Hopkins, but then Brian added, not including the current roster. And then he said, could it be Anton Lander? It, it might be. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm looking through the Oilers' all-time uh, game Games played list. I mean, Kevin Lowe played 1,037 games uh, with the Oilers, but he played for other teams. Ryan Smith played for other teams. Mark Messier played for other teams. Uh, I mean, even down, Yanni Ninema played for other teams. Dave, Dave Lomley played for other teams. So that that's an incredible question. Wow. What about, oh, wait, who did, you know, Zach Stortini played 256 games with the Oilers of his 257 NHL games. He played one game with the Nashville Predators. Right. Uh, so he would, he would edge out Anton Lander 215. You know what, Brian, it probably is Anton Lander. That is out of the uh, file of randomness tonight from Brian in Millet and his thinking rocking chair. We had Andy Ambro- uh, Randy Ambrosi on the show last night, the commissioner of the Canadian Football League. I asked him if uh, how open he is to a sh- potentially shortened CFL season. Well, we have not made any decisions. You know, we, we are talking about everything. You know, one of the really interesting questions is just kind of what, um, you know, how do you create a, a season that's credible? You know, so, you know, what, what, how many games would you have to play to have a season that's credible? And, and uh, lots of really good feedback. And, you know, we're talking to one another. Um, we're asking ourselves those important questions. Uh, and, and really, we're doing scenario planning on a whole range of, uh, of possibilities, all, you know, all those combinations and permutations, if you go back to your statistics days. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you know, we are, we've, we've got our date, uh, November 22nd in Regina. 
you know, in some ways, Reed, I can't think of a better place or, a, uh, you know, to gather Canadians as, as Grey Cup always has and really at that point not just celebrate great football but really celebrate uh, coming together after and, and hopefully after we've got this uh, crisis behind us. So for the most part, we, you know, we're thinking that date is, is, is on the books and, and uh, won't be moved. Um, you know, as for what it takes to get us to that game, there's a lot more unanswered questions than there are answered questions. All right, so that's Randy Ambrosi. He was on the show last night. You can get the full interview on the Inside Sports page on 630Ched.com. Inside Sports also available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So I think he's realistic that this, the CFL season could be shorter than 18 games, potentially much shorter than 18 games, as we bring in our Eskimos analyst, Blake Dermott. And uh, I I love the phrase he used, Blake, uh, as long as it is still a credible season. And perhaps that's open for negotiation, what everybody thinks is credible. But uh, to me, they're, they're clearly preparing for a season in the CFL that will not be 18 games this year. Well, I, I think they, they pretty much have to. You know, it's uh, with with the potential. I mean, training camp is supposed to start mid mid May here, and and uh, I don't think they're close to that. Haven't had a draft, hadn't had hadn't had any, any of their combine combine camps. So, so I mean, realistically, starting sometime before July. Well, if you're if you're looking at that, there's two months of your season gone. So, so if you're saying that there's, I believe, 20 weeks in a season because of the two bye weeks. You, know, you do the math. That's uh, that's cut down quite a bit of your um, opportunity to have games. Well, if you let's say let's say we talked about going from you and I talked earlier today about the, the CFL a long time ago, back in the early 70s, used to be 14 games, and uh, in the 60s and 50s, uh, I think 50s, it might have been 12 games or something. So the CFL has has a history of having played fewer games. I mean, travel was tougher. You know, there was it was there was a whole bunch of reasons why that happened. So for me, I think a credible amount of games is possibly 12 games. And if you, if you, if you as, a, as a low point, if you're able to get to 12 games, I think it'd be tough to go below that. But if you're at 12 games, do you need a buy? I mean, I, I believe when, when, I, when I played, we, we only had one buy a year. So now they have two. But with nine but teams, two. though, you have to have a team off every week, though, right? But you're, I'm sorry, you're right. You have yeah. to have that. So you have to have a, a, a bye week. But, but even still, if you got down to 12 games, that's... That's, uh, uh, you know, with eliminating one of those bye weeks, um, you can probably make up a little bit of time. And uh, and I know that the player safety is a lot different than it used to be in that you, 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 have to have, you can't play within a certain period of time between games. But you could certainly, uh, you might be able to manage a schedule that would give you 12 games quite easily to, to still make, make that end point November 22nd. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I'd even be I'd even be happy with 10. I had a couple listeners write in last night that who said, you know, they'd be happy with eight. You just played every team once and then and then went into the into the postseason. I mean, they, they clearly got to prepare for for anything here. And I've always felt 18 is 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 a lot of football, and and then that means sometimes you're playing teams in your divisions three times, and and I like a lot of the rivalries in the CFL. I don't need need really need to see teams play once a month for three months like how sometimes it does with with the schedule. And like you said, it it it, it always changes. There, 18 is not a it is not a sacred number. It's only a sacred number because that's nine home games for for every team in the league. But in terms of the, the quality of competition or the, the caliber of the Grey Cup champion, 18 is not a sacred number. Well, you know, the other thing, too, is that, uh, I, and I'm not sure they can contract training camp 
any more than they already do. But do you need to have two exhibition games? Um, you know, you do you do you extend the amount of time after training camp that you can keep players and only play one exhibition game, get right into the season? Because part of part of that, uh, the reason you have training camp is a, a big part is for evaluation of players. But if you extend the evaluation period into the season, then is there a need for us to have a meaningless game where nobody plays about the first game except for people that are trying to make the team? I don't know. I think that that would put the onus, especially if it's a one-time off, and this is just this season. Um, you know, then you then you buy another week at that end. So, so there is ways to get to to get to a significant amount of games to be played in the season. They just have to be creative about it. Blake Dermott joining us tonight at Inside Sports. So I, I'm I'm curious from from your memories as a player. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a long year. Were, do you ever remember points in the season where you started feeling, you know, worn out or, or tired? I mean, I know when you were in it, you wouldn't sit there thinking like, oh, I wish we only played 14 games or anything like that. But, like, how, how did you get through those parts of the season where it just was mentally or physically wearing on you? And maybe, you know, you probably knew you were going to the playoffs, but it still felt like those intense games were a ways away. Oh, it, it happened every, to every player. Um, and it was always right around that Labor Day part of the season. And, and I mean, think about this, especially as a Canadian college player. Uh, you, you have an eight-game season, maybe one exhibition game, and your season for a lot of college guys is done, uh, majority of the college players. So at nine games, your season is over. If you play in the States and you make it all the way to the national championship game, you play 14 games. So for most of them, they're in that 10-game, 11-game mark, and their season's done. So right around that halfway point of the season, your body has been used to being finished. Early in my career, you're used to being finished by that time, and that was really difficult. But then the longer you play, you know, the more you get used to it. The end of the season seems like such a long ways away in August, but once you hit September 1st, the, the crowds seem to be a little bit louder. It, it starts to smell like football in, in the fall. And, and and then now you can see the end of the season, uh, like the end of the tunnel. And that's when you got motivated, and that helped you get motivated. Was was Things got interesting right around uh, right around September. Things That's when you start really paying attention to playoffs and, and what the implications are. So so that's, that was easy to stay motivated once you got to that point. But, yeah, but that halfway point sometimes could be just crippling. So what would you do as a player to try to to save energy? I mean, you can't go to your coach and say, hey, hey I'm just not going to practice today. <laughs> that probably would have gone over well. And, yeah. uh, you, you know, you can't be like, hey, coach, I think I think our lead is big enough. Why don't you take me and the starters out? I mean, how, how would you how would you find ways to conserve energy during the year? It's, it's maybe a little bit different now with, with especially the management of playing time that they we've seen over the last couple of years, especially in basketball and some other sports. But uh, but football being such a shortened season, there there really was never uh, a way to do that unless unless of course you got way up in a game uh, with against somebody. Then the coaches would try to protect the the players, protect people. But it's so difficult in football because if you put a backup quarterback in, let's say, because you've got a big lead on you. And, and uh, the, the thought is, well, we don't want to take all the starters out around him. Otherwise, this guy's not going to be able to do anything. So, so you didn't see a lot of that. Or if you, 
take out your starting offensive line if you didn't have a, a, a competent people that could step in to allow for uh, there not to be that big a step down, then the concern is always that you, you, somebody could get hurt if you don't have the right people in there. So it's just different. I mean, it was, I guess it's just the mindset. Football is a little bit different that way. You just prepared to play all the time. That's what you did. You And uh, if you got a break, then it was like celebration. But you didn't anticipate that ever happening. It was uh, you wanted to be on the field. You wanted to play. And... Uh, and you expected to be on the field and play. And if you weren't on the field, then you the feeling for a lot of guys is that, okay, what did I do wrong? So if you were in a game and you sensed the guy across from you was, you know, was worn down or shaken up a little bit, like would you tell your quarterback or your coordinator right away? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, you that's, again, the nature of professional sports. If, if, a, if a, an opponent shows some sort of a weakness, then you, you want to try to exploit it. Um, and, and, and that's why you see a, a guy get injured and they bring a young guy in at corner. The first thing they do is they throw a ball up. You know, they, they got to test them. They got to see if they can take advantage of that. And, and uh, yeah, so, so that, was, that was the other thing. That was, you know, and that's one of, the, one of those things about, you know, guys playing with, concussions and stuff like that is you you never wanted to show a weakness not only to your teammates but of course your opponents because if you knew then they would try to exploit that and that would mean that they would be take trying to take advantage of you and your teammates not just you so so there was this really big thing and that's that's sort of in all sports so you got guys like bobby bond playing with a broken leg and you know uh, in the hockey game because he didn't want to show that he was injured it's it just the way professional sports is and was it was that that need to not show a weakness and to and and if you did Good, good luck trying to defend it. All right. So, what's the uh, most painful thing you ever played through? <laughs> my my thirties. Um. <laughs> the, the, the last eight years of your career. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say the the thing that probably was the most difficult thing for me, and there was a couple cases, but. In 1993, uh, 1993, in the Labor Day game, I tore my bicep, the large head of my bicep, off in the game with about five minutes to go in the game. And uh, what I, did, I thought I hurt my shoulder, and uh, I really struggled with going back out there. And I went back out of the field. I didn't know that I'd done it. Like I, like I said, I had all the shoulder pads on, and the doctor touched my shoulder and said, how's it feel? I said, well, it's starting to settle down. And so I went back out there. I didn't want to pull my game because I pulled myself from the game because we were losing the game. Again, I didn't want to let my teammates down or show any kind of weakness, so I went out there. And we ultimately, we uh, threw an interception in the last drive, and uh, the game, for me, ended with me being on the bench. So the doctor said, come see me after the game. So we'll take a look at your shoulder. So I went and saw him, got my shoulder pads off and everything. They hadn't even looked at my arm. And, and I went there, and he, and he said, so how long ago did you rupture your bicep? And I said, I've never ruptured my bicep. And he said, well, it's ruptured now. And, and when that happens, the muscle tears from your shoulder and bunches up down towards your elbow. Oh. So I had this ball of muscle sitting down there on my elbow. And uh, and at that point, you know, I was like, oh, what did I do? And and so, they they gave me the the choice of of having surgery and ending the season, or managing the pain and playing the rest of the year as long as I could. And I played that Friday. That was Monday, and I played Friday. And 
I had to play the rest of the season. I played, chose to play the rest of the season with, with basically one arm. And, uh, and then in the, in the game, uh, Ronnie Lancaster at that time said, okay, well, at least you're not doing long snapping. So that's fine. Then we get into the game and Michelle Bourgeau was our, our uh, he would do the log snapping for, he, he was my backup and he was taking the game. He, he sort of rolled the field goal snap back to him. And I said to Ron, I think I could do it, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I, I took a couple of the side. I said, yeah, I can do it. So then I long snapped for the rest of the year even with no bicep in my arm. So, uh, But that was that was the toughest thing that I played with. That's amazing. Blake, we will keep catching up with you. I hope you and your family are doing well. Thanks so much for checking in tonight, man. I love talking to you. Yeah, Reed, I, I, thanks for having me. And I got to go because I've got my uh, Marble Racing Fantasy League draft coming up. I got to get to. So uh, without, without the sports, I'll find a way to keep, uh, keep uh, entertained. Oh, awesome, buddy. See ya. <laughs> All right. That's Blake Dermott. You must have heard us play the, uh, the uh, Joe Buck play-by-play of the Marble Race the other night here on Inside Sports. We're back after the break. Okay, Brian Burke was on Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer earlier today. And, of course, a lot of question marks about the NHL season. They have already postponed the draft. They have postponed the uh, the combine. They've postponed, uh, and, and the draft lottery is, uh, is up in the air, also postponed the award show. And uh, Burke says the hopes of returning to play appear to be dwindling. I would love to be wrong on that. But, yeah, it's going to be quite a bit of time if we play at all. And I if think there's a good chance. I, I still think we're not going to play, but I want to be hopeful. And the one thing that could solve all this is if they come up with a miracle cure, a vaccine or something, which is not beyond the realm of possibility. So yes. uh, I'm hopeful we'll play. But um, if I'm betting man, I'll repeat my assertion I made here a week ago and made again last night. Um, I do not think we're going to play this year, but I hope to God I'm wrong. postponed August 23rd the new date it was scheduled to be run on May 24th so another in the long line of events that have been cancelled or postponed and uh, the the big one a couple days ago the Olympics Tokyo 2020 will not be 2020 going to be in 2021 as we welcome our buddy John Shannon to the show John how are you doing hello Reed. how are you I'm doing well. Was this not the week you were supposed to be in Edmonton and probably sitting across from me in studio tonight doing this interview? I think you're probably right. I I must be honest. In uh, it is it, oh, it's Thursday, yeah. So that's the one that you have to keep. Tra- it's difficult to keep track anymore. Uh, but uh, I've lost track of time. And you're right. This was supposed to be the week. The Oilers are going to play Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I was going to be there for all. All three uh, games of that homestand. Yeah, and, and I, I think we'd been in touch about you popping in either tonight or, or two days ago on Tuesday, which was fun because it was awesome when you were here uh, a couple of months ago. And we and that, and that night we started talking about 
you covering the Olympics in, in your long and, and very broadcast career, but it was kind of at the end of uh, everything we got into. So when, when you and I talked earlier this week and then the Olympic news came down, I thought, well, here, here's a great chance to, to go down that road. I mean, first of all, John, just in terms of because when Canada made the announcement on Sunday that we're not going, and then I think I think Dick Pound said, the Canadian IOC member, okay, probably expect something in, in three or four weeks. Well, it, it didn't even take that long. The, the IOC and the Tokyo organizers no. said, we got to put this off right away. Well, I just think, you know, once, uh, and there was pressure from a couple of the large federations in the United States to, uh, I think the Swimming Federation and the Track and Field Federation and, and put it out there that they were they were taking a look at what was going on in Tokyo. I think once one country uh, of a of a high level like Canada that has always performed well at the uh, Summer Games recently, uh, once that happened, then it was it was an easy decision, I think, uh, for the uh, for the IOC and and for the Tokyo organizers to make it. Just to me, it just makes a, a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense. So how many Olympics were you a part of as a broadcaster? Uh, seven or eight. Seven, yeah, I think seven. Yeah, uh, and my first one, actually, was the interesting part was I was supposed to go to Los Angeles uh, for the Summer Games in 1984 and uh, declined to go uh, because uh, I was negotiating at the time with TSN to take a job there and, and subsequently didn't take the job at TSN but missed the L.A. Games, and then I started in Calgary in 1988. So, I mean, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a spectacle. It's such a huge TV event. Like, you might laugh at this question, but I'll just start here because there's a lot of roads we can do- go down. But, like, you're, so you're producing the Olympics for a Canadian network. Like, how do you start organizing yeah. that? The people, the broadcast schedule, what's live, what's on tape? Like, where do you even begin? Well, you know, the interesting part is that you do it on two different levels because um, I I think we have to be realistic about it is that the schedule really is deemed by NBC. (laughs) They they pay the most money. They get what they want. And then we find, you know, and we're lucky enough right from the beginning of any, any Olympic Games, we're lucky enough to be in those meetings with those people. Uh, right from the beginning. I mean, the logistics that go invo- are involved in something like the Summer Games, uh, it's not as if they start three months before. Uh, they are four years in the planning. You know, there were, there were discussions three and a half years ago uh, in, in Switzerland at the head of the, uh, uh, head of the Olympic Committee, uh, in Tokyo with the uh, Japanese organizers about what what events were going to take place on which days, uh, what venues were going to be finished on time, uh, the logistical, the, the logistical uh, magnitude of an Olympics is phenomenal. To put it in perspective, uh, I was involved in the host broadcaster and a, a senior I- involvement uh, in, in many ways in probably four Olympics. Other ones I was there as a commentator, didn't have to worry, you don't have to worry about as much when you're a commentator or a junior production person. Um, but, for instance, I went to Nagano, Japan, eight times in 18 months to have meetings 
about scheduling, about technical issues, uh, about uh, traffic concerns, uh, every every aspect, housing, every aspect that uh, would involve the broadcasters. There's a, a, another meeting for another uh, world broadcasters discussion, uh, and it, it just never stops. And, and it's one of the reasons, Reed, actually, they they decided to move the summer games to the off years. Uh, starting in 1994 in Lillehammer, uh, so that there there could be a, a use of si the same people constantly, uh, who understand the logistics of Olympics, summer games, winter games, summer games, winter games, uh, so that they could take some of that knowledge uh, on a uh, on a on a biannual basis as opposed to every four years, and get everybody involved and understand it. It is the magnitude is as big as anything that goes on is it's as big as the g7 it's as big as the united nations it is a massive undertaking on every different level yeah and it's uh, it's it's a it's a sports fans it's a sports fans delight and i like i remember the games in vancouver and obviously the the golden goal one of the most famous canadian goals of all time but what was a joy for me was i was working at city tv at the time and, and getting home from work and oh, you turn it on, and there's there's Luge, there's Bobsleigh. Oh, I heard this yeah. happen earlier in the day. There's there's a, there's a replay of it. It's just such a, I mean, almost as a viewer, after the two weeks, you're you're kind of maybe ready for it to end because you've been glued to it for so long. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but, the, but all the so choreographed though. Read so choreographed when you when you put it that way. For instance, in the summer games, um, in the first week. Uh, will be swimming uh, in the second week will be gymnastics they are so they are such high rated highly watched events don't put them against each other right so you have to schedule it that way and it's the same thing in the in the uh, the winter games now the hockey tournament's a little different because it goes forever um, but it, there was a time for instance in Calgary uh, there was a time that um, uh, they sh they shared the same arena. The Saddle Dome was designed and built for both figure skating and hockey, uh, and we alternated. So for the uh, for the 14 days of the uh, the summer uh, the winter games in Calgary, uh, you had hockey one night and figure skating the next. And you saw you saw you had a great chance when, if you were in the arena all the time as I was, you had a chance to see not just all the great hockey, but you had a chance to see all the great figure skating as well. And did Calgary not use Father David Bauer Arena as well? Uh, Bauer, no, no the, the, the second venue for, believe it or not, the second venue for hockey was the Corral. Oh, of course. Okay. I'm going to Google that and, tournament now while you're talking. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and there was a demonstration sport, too, that year at the Corral, because they had three demonstration sports, short track, speed skating, curling. And guess what the third one was, Reed? Don't even check your computer first. What, guess what the third sport for the demonstration was? I wouldn't even know. Was it uh, like the freestyle skiing? Think of Alberta. Uh, was rodeo. Wait, in the winter? Well, the winter games, yeah. Oh, well, I didn't Why not? know that. Indoor. It was indoor. Okay. It was indoors, yeah. So, oh, <laughs> so there was a demonstration sport of rodeo at the corral the second week of the... Uh, the second week of the Olympics, but but uh, Max Bell Arena, which is uh, basically Deerfoot and the, the Crow Child, 
in Calgary was uh, where short track speed skating and curling took place as demonstration sports. And obviously they came in and the following winter games in Japan, uh, or sorry, uh, the following, where did they come? They, they didn't come until Japan, although short track was before that. I've lost track of time. And bo and th those are great sports that Canadians have excelled at. So yeah. we we invented we we brought sports in that we knew that we were going to be good at, which was important. Well, that's true. Our medal count has gone up because oh, of. Yeah. And look, I'm not saying that we aren't because we are good at them. But the freestyle skiing, the curling, obviously, I always found it sure. absurd that curling wasn't in the whole time, though. Well, you needed a, you needed to get in. Well, but we're Canadian, and we're a little myopic when it comes to our sports. Uh, you need to get you, you need to get enough countries uh, involved in these sports. And and let, let's face it, um, curling's curling's success for the longest time, from the time that we were kids, was Canada. Bud Somerville from the United States. Bud Somerville seemed to be always involved. It doesn't matter, but it was only Bud Somerville. There was nobody else. And then the the the, the three Scandinavian countries, um, and Scotland. Scotland did well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but 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 you need at least ten. We were having a di we're we were always having a difficult time with curling to get to ten. Now, now that the Americans see the Americans fell in love with curling. The Americans fell in love with curling in Salt Lake City. Uh, and it's changed a ton, and uh, and it has grown so much uh, since 2002. Uh, hence, curling's growth in the Olympics and uh, its fan support, and 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 its grassroots growth uh, in many countries. Okay, but here's what I, I'm probably not the only one thinking this. They wanted to get to 10 in curling, but they ever, they only ever really got to two in women's hockey. Well, and and let's let's talk about that. That's that is still a major issue. Uh, when it comes to the game, I don't know if you remember. I want to say 2012. We had a uh, Bob Nicholson was a driving force between between the World Hockey Summit that they it took place in Toronto, uh, and one of the final one of the final seminars and discussions in front of about 500 people, I was the moderator for, and it was about the future of women's hockey. Uh, and Murray Costello stood up at that conference and committed two million dollars of the IIHF funding in order to try to get other countries. You know, there, there, for instance, at that point in 2012, there were less than 500 women hockey players in Russia. There were less than 100 women hockey players in Czech Republic and, and Slovakia. You know, the growth of the women's game has been true in Canada, in the United States, in Sweden, and in Finland. That's where the growth has been. Uh, I remember, I don't know if you remember, Charles Wang, the former owner of the Islanders, tried to create a women's program in China. Mm -hmm. uh, and had, we, they had a Chinese Olympic team in Salt Lake City, and then it fell flat in its face after that. Yeah. Because um, well, China they, was good right at the very beginning of the women's international hockey scene. Right, weren't they good right when it started, Gavin Worlds and all that? I don't, um, well, the first Worlds were in Ottawa, weren't they? I still remember Geraldine Heaney right. flying through the air, scoring the winning goal. Um, but it really, it was, it really was a two-country uh, tournament, uh, and 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 much so because of uh, you know the NCAA Title IX system that allows f for young women to play college hockey in the United States. Because for every, if you had a men's team, you had to have a women's team. That's by law in the United States. 
uh, and that helped that helped the growth of uh, the game, and it helped Canadians, uh, young young ladies, to p play the game in the United States. It helped them grow and uh, and be such great hockey players in our country. John Shannon joining us tonight on uh, on Inside Sports. So, okay, so you mentioned uh, seven or eight Olympic games, four of them as as a, as a higher level producer. I'm gonna, I'm going to throw this one at you because when, uh, even sports fans who love the Olympics, we we think about you know red tape and bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff. Best organized Olympic Games, uh, least, I won't use the word worst, John, the least best organized. <laughs> huh. um, well, I think the Norwegians did a magnificent job in Little Hammer. Uh, I really do. Um, it, was, it was like having the Olympics in Jasper. I mean, it was the, the town of Little Hammer was about 28 or 29,000 people. The mountains were close. Uh, the people were friendly. Uh, it, you could walk the main street. Uh, there was tons of restaurants and bars, and lots of fun. And they and the Norwegians are very much like us. They, you know, they're a folksy type of people that enjoy themselves uh, and love their outdoor sports. And they're, you know, let's face it, their their alpine teams and their cross country skiing teams, their Nordic uh, sport teams, are fantastic. Uh, so th I, I will always have a special place for that games. The game that the games that really changed uh, from a bureaucratic perspective was Salt Lake City, uh, simply because of security. And if you recall, it was not that far after 9/11, uh, and uh, and the concerns of uh, of terrorism. Uh, it reared its ugly head, and the security budget, I think, went from $5 million to $25 million mm -hmm. uh, and, and changed the whole perspective. But it, it, was, it, it was far tougher to do it. I, I'll, I'll, put it in, I'll put it in perspective for you, Reed. So in all the previous games, particularly the ones that were the NHL players, or some of the NHL players were, and, and NHL officials, particularly in Japan, uh, I was involved. I was in charge of all of hockey at, in Nagano, and, and on a regular basis, we would make sure because the Japanese were very official. We would make sure that the referees and linesmen had beer after every game. <laughs> I had enough power that I could make sure that the referees and linesmen had beer after every game, and I would leave it in my car and drive through the security gate in Nagano, and they'd say, "What's that?" I said, "It's beer for the referees," and they would let me go. I tried to do it in Salt Lake the first day, and they wouldn't let me do it. So from then on, we had to smuggle it in. Oh, jeez. <laughs> we can't. Hey, listen, you got referees got to get their beer, man. Yeah, for sure. They got to get their beer. So in the end, we 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 found a way to beat the system. Uh, but uh, it, the security was much more intense there uh, in, uh, in in Salt Lake than it was in the previous games, and I think it, and and obviously it has changed even more severe in the Olympics to, uh, that have, uh, have followed 2002. Yeah, well, that's incredible. You, that, that I love that story about getting beer in, and I, I got to go back to what you said about Norway. And, uh, you know, how they like their alpine and they like their ski jumping and their cross country. Oh, and, and from working in, in Lloydminster, uh, John, I mean, I was I was working in Lloydminster when Becky Scott, who's from Vermilion, not far from Lloyd, peaked. And we used to interview Becky all the time and her dad, Walter, uh, who, you know, mm. who has since passed, had that incredible passion. And I can remember Becky saying, like, you know, you, you go to a cross country skiing event in Norway and there's like 50,000 people there. Like she's Becky said she was like more famous in Norway for being a Canadian cross country skier than she was in Canada. 
Oh, no question. There, no, no question. I mean, they, in, in Lillehammer uh, for the uh, for the cross country events, they they built a and I call it a stadium, but they built a, a, a circuit that could house a hundred thousand people. Oh. And every day, every day there was a hundred thousand people who uh, you know you took the took the train from Oslo or or, or came from the surrounding towns. Uh, to watch the Norwegian team be successful, and I've never heard as many cowbells in my life as I did uh, on the cross-country tracks uh, at the at the Lillehammer Games. John, uh, th- this was this was great. I- I'm glad we went down this this road because you know, again, the Olympics are such a unique experience, and and for viewers, this this burst of all these sports for a couple of weeks. But uh, you explained a lot of things that go on and gone behind it. I-, I hope you're doing well. Of course, we'll keep in touch, and and, and we'll have you on again, and uh, we'll see what happens with the NHL and the and the CFL and all these other events. But it's always good to have you on the show, buddy. Well, stay safe, stay healthy, Reed, and uh, everybody in Edmonton, stay safe and, he- safe and healthy. Have a great night. Right on. That is John Shannon checking in tonight. Uh, really enjoyed those memories of uh, the Olympic Games and some of the things he experienced as a broadcaster. That is some cool stuff. Some guests on Inside Sports get gift certificates to Northern Chicken. Don't forget to check them out at northchickenyeg.com for the options they're offering with pickup and delivery as we go through this pandemic, bringing down South Comfort Food to Edmonton with their creative take on Southern Classic fun with a modern twist we're back after the break hello extreme decadence dance requested by the hermit Teflon Don texting in. He says, I am mostly Norwegian. Now, you've piqued my interest there, Don. What does mostly mean? Like, is that fi- cause 50.1% would be mostly. He says, it's all about being on the move outside. Even today, Norway has Viking-era right-to-roam laws and conventions that allow people passage on foot unimpeded anywhere in Norway. It's cultural to rack up the miles on skis or by foot. That is from Teflon Don. Thank you very much. We appreciate that, Don. 780-496-0063. Oh, we got to go. Thanks to John Shannon, Blake Dermott, Mark Letestu, Joaquin Gage for coming on the show. Dave Campbell's the producer. Kellen Kennedy, your studio operator this evening. Adler is next. My name is Reed Wilkins. Stay safe. Be smart. Talk to you tomorrow. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad.